in the northwest of Australia, way out there, there's a place called the Cape Range National Park. And you find emus and uh, snakes, lots of snakes, snakes like the Pilbara Death Adder. You know, I'm thinking to myself, if there's a creature that has the word death in its name, it's probably a really, really good idea to keep away from it. And it's a smart idea to keep away from the Pilbara Death Adder. Now, this place is remote, the Cape Range National Park. If you want to get to a town with about 40,000 people in it, you've got to drive for 13 hours. It's remote, and remote is good. Remote is good if you want remote. Remote is good if you want solitude. If you want aloneness, it's great. Some people want that. Family from Scotland decided a holiday in the Cape Range National Park. That kind of isolation is good, except for when you don't need isolation. Sometimes you need people around. And when this family from Scotland was holidaying at the Cape Range National Park, a situation arose where they needed people. See, mum and dad had a 14-year-old son. Together they were walking the Badgerajira Loop Trail. It's only five miles, moderately difficult, the park says. The son started to suffer from heat stroke and exhaustion. So dad did what any dad would do, and he called the emergency services. He began to explain what was going on, but the person on the other end of the phone couldn't understand a word dad was saying. He was from what country? Scotland. Well, the country, actually the United Kingdom, but he was from the the country of Scotland. And they speak English in Scotland. But if your ear isn't accustomed to the Scottish accent, it can sound like almost anything but. And talking down a telephone to someone who wasn't well acquainted with the Scottish accent, Dad couldn't made his couldn't make his point clear. Emergency services arrived, but they were dreadfully delayed in getting there. The delay proved deadly, and a perfectly healthy 14-year-old boy died while with his family on holiday in Australia, essentially because of a lack of understanding. When you get to the Bible and go to the end of the Bible, the back of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, you find the book of Revelation. Now, it begins by saying it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's very important. One would think that a revelation of Jesus Christ should be understandable. Don't be buffaloed by the the seals and the trumpets and the thunders and the horns and the whatever. Don't be buffaloed by that. If you would take a look at the book of Revelation and read what you what is there and understand what's there to be understood and take it at essentially face value, you will discover that the book of Revelation can be readily understood. You may not walk away understanding every last syllable, but you'll get enough. But unfortunately, there is great confusion when it comes to the plainest statements and the most important messages found in the book of Revelation. Great confusion. And that confusion will ultimately, for many, many people, prove to be deadly. You see, when you get to Revelation chapter 6, it's a picture of the second coming of Jesus, but from a certain perspective. 
There are a group of people in Revelation chapter 6 who are dead lost. They're not saved when Jesus returns. It's like that group of people Jeremiah wrote about who says the, the summer is past, the harvest is ended, and we are not saved. That's them. And they're not saved when Jesus comes back, and they call to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them. That's what they do. And what's interesting is that they are lost legitimately. The people alive at the end of time when Jesus returns are lost because they are those that had the mark of the beast, those who worship the image of the beast. This is deadly. Anyone who worships the beast and receives the mark of the beast Cannot be saved. Cannot. Can you imagine that? Too late. You cannot come in. Jesus spoke about ten virgins and five were wise, five were foolish, all ten of them were asleep. And then when the wedding feast took place, the five who arrived later said, let us in. And Jesus said, no, that doesn't work that way. You've got to be ready. They weren't ready. They were lost. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9, we read that if anyone worships, oh, I beg your pardon, I omitted Revelation 6, uh, John 16 and verse 3, which says, Jesus speaking, howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. A group of people have the mark of the beast. Now, did God speak to them? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Did God appeal to them and try to get through to them? Yes, God did. But they, they, they didn't get the message. They didn't understand the message. Or, ladies and gentlemen, they wouldn't understand and wouldn't get the message. That's an interesting distinction. But what God does is he gives us the word of God and then he sends the Holy Spirit to guide us. It's really important you listen for the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that there are some people who listen carefully, but for whatever reason, they're just confused. For whatever reason. It's like some people go to math class and they might be a really good maths teacher, but you get confused. And it's true. That's right. Some people with genuine hearts can be confused. But in the end of time, the issue isn't going to be confusing. It's going to be clear because an angel flies in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. That's why this is important, not because it's simply about a beast, but because it is the gospel message and uh, uh, the gospel message for Earth's last days. There is a third angel, there are three of them, and the third angel says, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is pretty serious. But God gives the warning message, the gospel message, out of love, out of love. Now, it's hard to know whether or not these are people who were taking God seriously or not. It's hard to know whether they were listening but simply couldn't understand or not. I don't think if you are genuinely trying to understand and follow God that you'll be confused because if your heart is towards God, God will communicate and connect. No question about that. But we do read this in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, and I tell you what, if anything was going to sober you up, it ought to be this. Jesus said, if anyone worships the beast, (laughs) sorry, I'm on autopilot. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. Who are these people? They are believers. We know they're believers because they call out to God and they say, Lord, Lord. 
They know something about prophesying and doing good works. They've done well. But what does Jesus say to them? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, I say they've done well, maybe as human beings would uh, judge the situation, but certainly not as God does. It is something that Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, one might say they never understood the voice of God, but no, it's not true down in the close of time because everybody hears God's last day message. They ignored it. They understood it, but they ignored it. They heard it and they said, no, God penetrated their heart. They hardened their heart. You know what it can be like to ignore God's voice. In my hometown, there's a train bridge that goes across a river. For decades, children have been jumping off that bridge. Now, I would like to tell you that one of these three is me, but it's not. I used to climb up on top of that bridge. I used to walk. Uh, there, uh, uh, there, we'd cross it underneath, we'd walk on the tracks, and we'd walk across the top. Across the top. The closest I ever got to jumping was holding the clothes of the guys who jumped <laughs> and standing at the top of one of those pylons there. I never jumped off the bridge. Kids climbing up onto a train bridge to jump off the bridge, do you think that could be dangerous? Yeah, it could be. They've done everything. The authorities have done everything to keep kids off that train bridge. They've built fences. They've put razor wire or barbed wire around it. You know, the kids are too smart. The trains slow down real slow to cross that bridge because of the danger of present children. So the kids, they're the real enterprising ones. You know what they do? They wait for the train to go by, jump up on the back of the train, ride the train as the train is crossing the bridge. They jump off a moving train into the river. You can't stop these kids. But it's not smart. You know, if my son did what I did, I'd be beside myself with worry. We'd, we'd stand on the bridge. I remember the train driver tossing water at us. It was hot water when he threw it at us, but by the time it hit us, it was not hot. They didn't like it. It was dangerous. The kids don't worry. The kids even say, you can't keep us off the bridge. We're going to jump off the bridge anyway. And that's why an 11-year-old girl in my hometown was walking across the bridge recently, didn't hear the train. When she heard the train, she ran. There is a walkway. She ran. She ran in front of, you know, out in front of the train. But then for some reason, as she turned to change direction, she tripped and she fell on the tracks and ended up under that train. Did she survive? No, of course she didn't survive. It was absolutely tragic. There was danger, real danger. Did she need to lose her life? No, there are fences, there's barbed wire, there are signs, there are warnings. Keep off the bridge. The reason the girl died is not because she tripped. It's not because she was hit by a train. The reason that she died is that she ignored the warning. That's why she died. In Revelation chapter 3, God speaks to believers who don't know, God says, that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Why does God warn us? Because there's danger coming. God warns us not because he's a bellicose God issuing angry threats. God warns us because he loves us. He wants us to stand where it's safe to stand. He wants us to come to him and rest. He urges us, he urges us to be safe. I just invented another word. He urges us to be safe. If you're from New Zealand, you probably think that word was already in the dictionary, but it wasn't. 
In Isaiah chapter 26, God speaks of the resurrection and he says this, Behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Isn't that something? And right before this, God says these words, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. That's what God says. There is trouble coming. So hide yourself and hide yourself in me. That's what God says. The mark of the beast represents the culmination of the great battle between good and evil that has been raging since time immemorial, since Satan decided that he wanted the worship that belongs to God. Since Lucifer said, I want to be like the Most High, that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. And this obsession to receive the worship of the world, to deprive Jesus of the worship of the world, culminates in this issue. Please don't miss this. The mark of the beast is the culmination of Satan's desperate drive to receive worship. And so it's a solemn subject. Now, you've heard it said, I'm guessing I've heard it said, that the mark of the beast is 666, but that's not true. John wrote in Revelation, here is wisdom, let him who has understanding count or calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, this takes a little bit of calculating. It does. The confusing ideas and theories that swirl around this earth are only serving to cause people to miss the point. The key issue in earth's last days is worship, true worship or false worship. Now, reformers during Reformation time, they were dead right when they identified the Vatican City as the nation spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. John Knox and John Calvin and Roger Williams and John Wesley and uh, William Farrell or Guillaume Farrell, and so many others. Martin Luther, I should have mentioned Martin Luther. They identified that the little horn in Daniel 7 and the nation in Revelation 13. What do you mean nation, John? In Bible prophecy, a beast is simply a symbol. It represents a nation. It's not an epithet. It's not a slur. It's not a bad word. It just means a nation. So in Revelation chapter 13, that nation is the Vatican City. It's a church state government. It's a religious system that's based on works and not faith, that's based on penances and uh, good deeds, uh, counterfeit such as a counterfeit baptism and a counterfeit Sabbath. Uh, praying to saints instead of to God or as well as to God. Confessing your sins to a human being when Jesus said nothing about that. In fact, he was very clear there's only one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, not the man at your friendly local church. And so they identified this nation as the beast or the country in Revelation chapter 13. And so when you're looking for the mark of the beast, you're looking for the mark of the Vatican. It's what you're looking for. Now, when it comes to the number of the beast, this must be the number of the Vatican as well. Where do you find this? Now, there are a number of theories that stand. I have found no better explanation than the following. One of the titles, because it says it's the number of his name, one of the titles used by the popes of Rome down through time has been this one, Vicarious Philae Dei, and it means the vicar of the Son of God. Let me extrapolate that out a little bit further. It means the one 
who stands in the place of the Son of God. And that's a blasphemous title just in and of itself. The one who stands in the place of the Son of God, vicarious philae dei. Now, what's interesting is that this is written in Latin. You've heard of Roman numerals. And so a Latin number has a numerical value ascribed to it. For example, you know that a V is five, an X, we don't see any X's here, but an X is what? Ten. Uh, a C, do you know what a C would represent? C represents a hundred, that's right. C for century, that's right. Uh, and I would be how many? One, that's right. So what would the numerical value of vicarious philae dei be? Vicarious 112. That U, that's the same as a V. It's just a modern expression of a V. I don't know if we see this here, but where I live, frequently you'll see the courthouse, and up on top of it, courthouse will be spelled C-O-V-R-T-H-O-V-S-E. The V is a, an old U, if you like. 112. Philae, 53. Dei, which means God, 501. And when you add them together, you come up with the number 666. Now, because the last day issue in the Bible centers around worship, you could expect the mark of the beast to be religious in nature. Look into the book of Revelation, and we see Revelation 13.3 say, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been wounded to death. His deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they, come on now, worshipped the dragon who gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with them? You know, it's right there all along, and yet we're saying the beast, the Antichrist, is King Juan Carlos of Spain, or it's Prince Charles, or it's something else. Listen, just read the Bible and don't get swayed by uh, oddball theories. Verse 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so we got a question down here in the end of time. The question is plain and simple. It's a question that Adam and Eve had to answer. They failed first time around. It's a question Cain and Abel had to answer. Cain got it desperately wrong. The question is, who will you worship? That's the question. That's the question. That's that's the fundamental question. Answer that and you've answered everything. Who will you worship? It means who will have your heart? Now, God speaks in the Bible about the mark of the beast, and that gets all the hot air. But something's missing usually, and that's the counterpart to the mark of the beast, and that is the seal of God. While the devil is going to mark his followers, God's going to do the same. Revelation 7 verse 3 says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their where? Foreheads. Well, what in the world? You might have seen these garish cartoons of people who've got 666 written on their foreheads. Remember, 666 is the number and not the mark. Why on the forehead? Well, because your forehead represents your mind. Directly behind your forehead is the frontal lobe of your brain. That's the part of your brain that governs reasoning and decision-making. So when the Bible says the mark of the beast will be put on or in people's foreheads, it's simply saying it's going to be put in a person's mind. What's a seal? 
A seal is something used to witness to the validity of a document. I, uh, not far from where I live, there is an archaeological museum run by a, a, a very, uh, very good and uh, accomplished archaeologist. And just recently they had a, uh, uh, an exhibition that they got from, I believe it was Yale University, of seals from the Bible. And these seals would be like, uh, let's say you melt some wax and then you put a seal impression in there and it's a little bit like your signature. If it was the king now, this would be something that he would put on a law to make it valid. The document, the royal decree, the document became valid when it was sealed with a seal. For example, uh, I'm more familiar because I've been there for half my life with the government of the United States of America, and they would put the great seal of the United States on something. And so if a seal shows that a law is valid, then you would expect that God's seal would show that God's law is valid. I don't want you to follow. I, I, I do want you to follow. I don't want you to miss this. Don't fall off. God has a seal. He'll put it in our minds. And that seal will serve to show that God's law is valid. The Bible says in Hebrews 8 verse 10, this is God speaking, I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, two things are placed in the mind of the believer, God's law and God's seal. And I wonder if they could be related. The seal shows what has, the seal shows that there is authority in the law. So if God puts his law and his seal into our minds, what shows us God's authority? Revelation tells us, of course, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Why do you worship God? Because he's the creator. That's why. Why do you serve the God of heaven? Because he's the creator. If he was not the creator, then uh, why in the world would we worship him? What claim would he have to our worship? In the beginning, God created. His creatorship gives him his authority, or at least demonstrates his authority. Now, in every seal that you find, there are three components. The name of the person whose seal it is, that person's title, and that person's dominion. For example, uh, the, the Donald Trump's seal would say Donald Trump, President, United States of America. Uh, Elizabeth, Queen, Great Britain, and sundry other places you see. So the seal of God will be found in God's law and will show his name and his title and his dominion. Where do you find that in the law of God? I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. No, that's got God's name, but not his dominion, not his uh, title. Uh, thou shalt not worship graven image. No, no, you don't find it there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You don't find it there. But let's look here at the fourth commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the Seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. For in six days, there's God's name, the Lord made. He's the creator. That's God's title. Heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. There's God's dominion. 
you have all the elements of the seal of the living God, and we see that the Sabbath is the seal of God's law. It demonstrates to us who God really is. We can't ignore this. This is inextricably bound up with the person of God and with the creatorship and therefore the lordship of God. It shows God's power to create and recreate, and it's a sign of sanctification. Ezekiel the prophet wrote, Moreover, I also gave him my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign. The apostle Paul in Romans 4.11 said that a sign and a seal are the same thing. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Only the God who creates can recreate. Only the God who creates can make holy somebody who is unholy. Eight verses later, same prophet, God speaking, hallow my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath demonstrates that God is God because it tells us he made the heavens and the earth. He made the the mountains and the valleys. He made the oceans and the rivers. He made us. He made the animals. God is the maker. He hung the stars in space and he put the planets in their orbits. The Sabbath day shows us that God's Sabbath is a sign a sign between God and his people that he alone has authority, that he is the creator. Let me tell you something, because I've had people say to me, wait a moment, you are wanting us to be saved by our works, by keeping the Sabbath. Oh, no, I'm not. Let me make it abundantly clear. There is one way for a person to receive salvation, and that is by grace, through faith, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the question becomes, when you've come to Christ, how do you live? What happens when Jesus comes into your heart? What does God do in a person's life? He develops and produces obedience in our lives. There are how many commandments? Ten. We don't say, I'll follow you, God, on nine and ask for a 10% discount. When God has your heart, you follow him everywhere he leads you. Now, let me show you that the Sabbath is the ultimate sign of righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. It's not a sign of righteousness by works. It's a sign that only the divine power that spoke the world into existence can save us from sin. Now, Abraham and Sarah were told by God they were going to have a son. And Abraham and Sarah got to thinking about this. And Sarah in particular said, you know, that's never going to happen. I'm past childbearing age. Take my maidservant. And have a son with her, a child with her. Abraham did. But that son was not the child of the promise. God said, no, that doesn't cut it. I promised you a son and a son you will have. So believe me. And the Bible says that when Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. And what do you know? Abraham and Sarah produced a son. That son was the child of promise. I want you to follow me. God said, Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a son. Abraham and Sarah said, yeah, but no. So let's do it our way. That wasn't faith. When they believed God and said, let's do it your way, that was faith. Are you following me? 
Okay, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you say, yeah, but nah, I'm going to give you Sunday. I'm going to do it my way. That's not faith. That's an utter denial of faith because God has spoken and said, this is my will. And you say, no, I'm going to give you something completely different. Then when you say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm simply going to believe God and I'm going to do things his way. I'll let his will be done. That's faith. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You don't have a problem with thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't bow down to graven images. You're, you're good with all of that. And God says, remember the Sabbath day. He's looking for the same response. So when you say, okay, fine, I'm just going to believe God, that's faith. The Sabbath is a sign of righteousness by faith. When you give God another day, that's works. That's you saying, my ideas are better than God's ideas. My works will do in this equation. But when you say, you know what I'm going to do? I will accept what God says and do what he asks out of love. That's faith. And the Sabbath becomes a sign of righteousness by faith. And so what we know is this. The seventh-day Sabbath is the seal of God. It's the seal of God's law. Now let's go on to understand what the mark of the beast is. The Bible says to us in Mark 2 and verse 27, and this is Jesus speaking, the Sabbath was made for man. God says, I'm giving this to you. And over here in Revelation chapter 14, God says, if anyone worships the beast and his image, that person cannot be saved. Well, where does this lead Revelation 14, verse 12 says, here is the patience of the who? Saints, the saved. Here are they that, tell me, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So clearly God is calling us to love him so completely that our lives are characterized by loving obedience. Now I want you to contrast something. Those who keep the commandments of God don't receive the mark of the beast. Those who do not keep the commandments of God do receive the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast has to have something to do with God's law. Remember the issue, worship, worship. So let us ask ourselves, has anything done, has anything been done to affect God's law? Yes, remember, the ruling church of the day removed the commandment about idols, was left with nine commandments and split the tenth into two. That was a terrible change in the commandments of God because Daniel said that he would think to change times and laws, Daniel 7.25. But that power went a step further too and made a change to the seventh-day Sabbath, removing the seventh-day Sabbath and replacing it in Christendom with the first day false Sabbath, you understand. And so we ask ourselves, what is the distinguishing mark of the papal power? What does the Vatican say is its distinguishing mark? Remember again, what did God say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what does Rome say? This is from a catechism. Which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And here's the answer. We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Now, if you're okay with that, 
If you think it's Christianity to follow the teaching of a human being and not the teaching of God, then, you know, that's that's up to you. It's still a free world. If you think it's okay for human beings to change the divine law of God, then that's you've got to take that up with God. It's between you and him. But if you do not believe that human beings should change God's law and nobody has the right to tinker with what Jesus wrote on tables of stone, then this has got to be a problem for you. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Should we honor the resurrection? Yes or no? Oh, surely we should. My goodness, we can't get a greater gift from God after the gift of salvation, the resurrection, which made it all possible. But does the Bible say anything about changing the law of God because of the resurrection? Nothing. If it was there, we'd see it, we'd know it, we'd be able to say, here is where the big change was made. Cardinal Gibbons said, reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives. Either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. And he said, compromise is what? It's one or the other. You're either a Catholic and you keep Sunday, or you're a Protestant and you keep the seven-day Sabbath. Pope Benedict said, without Sunday, and he was referring to Sunday worship, we cannot live. The church is absolutely bound and determined. Now, this is interesting. This is taken from, uh, I mean, you can call this an official source or an unofficial source, from the church newsletter from a Catholic congregation in a town called Algonac in Michigan. It's really interesting that the priest wrote these words. He wrote, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. Now, he was wrong about that. It was the fourth century, but we can let that go. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scripture, but from the church's sense of its own power. He wrote, people who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. That's what the priest wrote. And so now we can understand what the Bible means when it says, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. And before you say, oh, this doesn't seem too bad, a little change in God's law, remember what Jesus said. He said, in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. How can it be wrong when everybody's doing it? You know, Jesus was not in the majority. And majority rule is not always right. The fact that everyone's doing it doesn't make it appropriate. A good counterfeit always runs very close to the true. The mark of the beast is really very simple. When we accept a change in God's holy moral law and accept what the beast says rather than what God says, we are accepting into our lives the mark of that nation's authority. We're accepting the mark of the beast. The true Bible Sabbath is a human being coming into communion with God, coming into communion with her or his maker. That's the true Sabbath. The counterfeit Sabbath is people choosing their own way and putting that ahead of God, ahead of the word of God and ahead of the will of God. 
Remember what it says in the book of Romans. Don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servant you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You're the servant of the one you obey. If you obey obedience, you're the servant of obedience. If you obey sin, you're the servant of sin, and it leads to death. Now imagine this. I don't know how attached the average Australian is to the national flag here. In the United States, it's just about as sacred as the Bible, you know, in some people's minds. In New Zealand, you know, we don't see people stopping for the flag a whole lot. I think in Australia, there's a little more reverence for this. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Follow this scenario with me. Imagine I came here, right here, hundreds of people here, and I pulled out of a bag a piece of blue cloth, and I threw that on the ground. And imagine I stamped all over it and stomped it and just ground it into the stage here. Would you be offended by that? No, you may be confused, but you wouldn't be offended. Now, let's say I got a little red cloth and I threw that down and I stamped on the red cloth too. You wouldn't be offended. You'd just wonder what had got into me. And then if I took some white cloth and threw that down and, and if I rubbed the dirt off my shoes all over that white cloth, you'd probably shrug your shoulders and say, what's got into him? But let's say I took that cloth and had it dry cleaned or laundered and then took it to a friend I know who knows how to sew real well. And he arranged it with a big background of blue. And he arranged some red and white up here to make a Union Jack. And then he got the rest of the white and he made a whole bunch of stars and scattered them over here down in the corner. And I brought him a cloth to the drum and threw it on the ground and stamped my feet on it and rubbed my dirty shoes on it. Is it a different story now? Now, you're going to have to explain to me, and I do mean that quite seriously, explain to me why it's a different story. It wasn't before. And after all, it is just cloth. So what's your problem? That's it. It's not cloth anymore. That cloth represents something. It represents a proud nation. You don't want somebody defiling the flag of Australia. You don't want that. This is what it is with the Sabbath day. The Sabbath isn't just a day. It's what it represents. It represents the creatorship of God. It represents the love of God. It represents a God so passionate about ransoming us from sin that his son came to the world to die for us. This is how God can be the creator and the recreator. It's not about a day. It's about what that day represents. That's what makes it really important. And if you would read in the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah, you would find where Isaiah says, where God says, as a matter of fact, please stop trampling upon my holy day. And that's what we're doing when we're failing to honor that thing that God asked us to remember. Isn't it interesting that so many people forget what God told us to remember? And I know there's a temptation to say, well, it doesn't seem bad. And it's just a little thing. You know, we aren't told that Adam and Eve sat down in the Garden of Eden and ate a great big watermelon. It was just something small. Eve didn't take out a gun and shoot someone. She didn't sell drugs on a street corner outside a high school. 
She ate a little fruit. Seems like a little thing. But it's a big thing when it represents that God does not have your heart. That's when it's big. Jesus said, if you love me, and I've got to get that back. He said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. So I need to tell you that nobody has the mark of the beast today. We see in Revelation chapter 13 that there is a time that this is coming. Then it will be the mark of the beast. It says in the Bible that he causes people to receive the mark of the beast. So this will be enforced, pressed upon the people of the world. And you say to yourself, oh, no, no, why would something like that be enforced? You see, I want to just take a little pause here and digress for a moment and explain this to you. If the mark of the beast was something obviously and noticeably wicked, most nobody would receive it. But what the devil is doing is he's convincing you to do something that appears good. It's good to take a rest. It's good to go to church. It's good to worship God. The devil is smart. He can convince people to believe that they're honoring God when they're actually dishonoring God. How can we know the difference? It's not hard. If you gave a Bible to someone who had never had any exposure to Christianity before, and you said, please start reading in the beginning of the Bible and stop when you find out what day God's holy day is. They get one chapter and two verses into the Bible and they'd say, I found it. It's not hard to find. So will this really happen? Can you ever see a time when a religious observance would be enforced by a world governing power? Well, what's interesting about this is the church is pretty committed to this. Pope John Paul II said a few years ago, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. The church has said this is what we're working towards. And this is why the Bible says he causes, forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand, their right hand, or on, and the King James says, in their foreheads, and that no one may be able to buy and sell except he who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So a couple of things that I think is important to address. It's not far away. We're not far away. A question is, what does it mean to receive the mark of the beast in your forehead? It means that you choose to go along with it. I've decided. To receive it in your hand says, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'll comply. I'll go along with it. Because after all they said, I can't buy and sell. Now, please notice, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I have to address it. Uh, how is this going to be the mechanism to keep people from buying and selling? Oh, it's not the mechanism. It's simply if you do this, you won't be able to buy and sell. You'll be kept from buying and selling. If you don't do this, you'll be free to buy and sell. I had somebody say to me once, who's going to even know? Do you know what year this is? Let me ask you a question. Do you know what this is? What is it? It's not a phone. What is it? It's not a cell phone. What is it? It's a tracking device. It's a tracking device. I'm not being conspiratorial about it. I'm not, I'm not being that. If you ever have the question, who's going to know? Who's going to know? You're being tracked. Even your apps are tracking you. And six days a week, there's a whole bunch of activity. And on the Sabbath day, there's nothing. It's pretty clear. 
I'm not telling you that's how it's going to be enforced. I'm just demonstrating to you that we are living in an age where it is no sweat for somebody now to know who's keeping the Sabbath day holy and who's not. So you wonder, you say, man, would this really happen? You might have wondered thousands of years ago, would sin really happen? It did, and this will as well. Some people will go along with the mark of the beast because they believe it's right. Others, they don't want to, but they're worried. How am I going to pay the bills? If I'm not able to buy and sell, how will I get food? This is why the Bible says we're saved by grace through through faith, through faith. And you don't want anything to cause you to sell out and go with the crowd and not go with the cross. And so it's imperative that today, while you hear his voice, that you harden not your heart. It's imperative that today, as we have opportunity to serve God and choose God, that we take those opportunities. It's absolutely imperative. The Bible says God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in what? And so we go back to the question that we had before the presentation began tonight. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were asked by God to bring a sacrifice. They both did, but one brought the sacrifice God wanted and one did not. And God said of Cain, I cannot accept this worship because it's not what I asked for. It's like I spoke earlier about the man whose wife was allergic to flowers. What if he's bringing her home a bunch of roses every week? It'd be madness. This is not what I asked for. I cannot appreciate that. Even though I recognize there's some intentionality in the gesture, I can't accept that. And when we bring God something he has not asked for, we end up not with the seal of God, but instead with the mark of the beast. It's not about a laser beam. It's not about what's on your hand. God's issues are more than skin deep. They go all the way to the heart. The question is really clear. Who do you love? Who will you worship? Because who you worship, how you worship, demonstrates who you love and whether or not you really love God. Do you value heaven above earth? Do you? Have you purposed, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back? Have you purposed that? You know, during World War II, uh, a ship got into some terrible difficulty off the coast of Greenland. It was transporting troops to Europe. The waters were icy cold. The ship was going down. It had been torpedoed, and down it was going. Well, of course, the sailors on board the ship ran for life jackets, grabbed the life jackets. But for some inexplicable reason, there were not enough life jackets to go around. There were four chaplains on board that ship, a Catholic, two Protestants, and a Jew. They had life jackets, and they realized there were four sailors who did not. So what do you think they did? They took their life jackets off and gave them to these four young men and said, you must be saved. You must make it home. We'll be okay. Take our life jackets. Can you imagine? Four young men receiving these life jackets from the chaplains. They ended up saved, alive, not dead. The chaplains clung for a while to wreckage. They did all they could to survive. They were heard singing, singing together. 
a Catholic, two Protestants and a Jew singing together, praying to God together. They died together. They gave their lives for the lives of four young men. I think about the story of Jesus. Jesus gave his life for me and you. Gave it. He said, no, no. You deserve to die. Not like the sailors who didn't deserve any of that. We deserve to die. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. Tonight, he's not asking you to die for him. He's asking you to live for him. 